Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Diana Limblad. And I'm Nora Schroeter. So this is what an anthropologist in the field may sound like. And while many of us might imagine the person making these sounds as an anthropologist in the 21st century who's working with the latest technologies, these, or at least similar sounds, could just as well have been produced by an anthropologist by the end of the 19th century who's collecting images of her or his field. Paolo Favero will point out in this interview how the camera has been an instrument used for anthropological fieldwork since long. Paolo, who is an associate professor at the University of Antwerp, suggests that using a camera is not merely a way to produce images or documenting empirical evidence, but a process of producing the empirical field material and choosing perspectives. Nora and I had the opportunity to talk with Paolo about his creative approach to visual methods after a workshop that he gave for us master's students in the Department of Social Anthropology at Stockholm University. Yes. We all were studying our fieldwork for our master thesis and were curious about how to approach the field with different visual methods. In our conversation, Paolo elaborates on how one can anthropologically apply recording devices when engaging with the field. So, let's listen to the interview. Today we have the pleasure to talk to Paolo Favero. He has devoted the core of his career to the study of visual culture in India and Italy and presently conducts research on image-making practices in contemporary India. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, we are very interested in different ways in which ethnograph ethnographic methods uh, can be applied. And you just gave a workshop to us master students here at the department. And in this workshop, you talked about how visual materials uh, can be used as ethnographic method. And uh, how do you think visual materials can enrich anthropological research? Mm, how it can enrich? Well, I, first of all, I think, you know, that there is... I mean, I think it's important to remember ourselves that there is no anthropology that has not really lived with visual technologies. I mean, anthropology was established very much thanks to uh, visual technologies. So, I mean, it, it's constitutive of our practice in terms of technologies, but also in terms of seeing. I mean, participant observation contains that word observation in it, and observation is metaphorically and not a visual reference. Yeah? So we look, and a lot of the, the things we get curious about in the field is stuff that we observe visually. So I think it's really central to it. Now, within that, the visual has, of course, become more or less central to our practice in different epochs. You know, it was like more central at the beginning, then it kind of disappeared. You know, there was a phase in which we trembled over, you know, the, 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 the lack of potential indexicality that images had. So we kind of used them less. And then, you know, with the linguistic term, they got back at the center. So it's been in waves. And now, surely, we're in a phase in which we use visual technologies a lot again. And I really think that the way in which they contribute to our understanding is really that they supposedly and hopefully sometimes are capable of showing things that we would not access otherwise. David McDougall said beautifully that um, the visual is a pathway to the other senses. So when we speak about interest for the body, for questions of embodiment, the, the visual is, uh, is really one of our key tools to enter those arenas. No, it's, it's a way in which we actually get in touch with affectivity, with, with uh, 
with the body in many different ways. So that way, is it, it, in that way, it's very, it's very central. And within that space, I think the visual sometimes can really make us find other things in our material. Yeah, it's not really just about changing perspective and looking at the same phenomenon from a different angle, but uh, when we embrace uh, visual technologies, when we do research, very often we actually discover things we have not seen before. Yeah. Also because sometimes the very fact of translating a scene that we witness in front of us with written words gives us a liberty that we don't have with a camera in case we're trying to film it or photograph it. So kind of forces us to rethink a bit of the, the practices we have otherwise. So I think it's a very useful uh, tool for rephrasing what anthropology is about, what ethnography is about. Yeah. But without being you know, an exception to it, that's important to state. It's really part and parcel of doing ethnography and it's always been. Um, so as master students, we are about to go on with our own research now, going to do fieldwork for the first time, and many of us are doing fieldwork in Stockholm, so we've been very much encouraged to defamiliarize with our field. And as you described visual methods, they seem to be very helpful in trying to see things in new ways, so it will be interesting if you can elaborate further on that. Yeah, and I, I um, really like that you pick on that term, defamiliarizing. Uh, I think that's really the endeavor of, of, of anthropology you know, as a discipline to allow us to actually see the mundane with different eyes, you know, to rethink conventional assumptions. Uh, and, and the familiarize is also a metaphor that has been strongly used in neurology when applied to vision. One recurrent example is that of uh, Schindler's List. You know, Schindler's List, there's a, there's a scene at the end of the film with this, uh, with the girl where he sees from afar the girl in the red, uh, wearing coat. the red coat. Yeah, so the red coat is conventionally interpreted as a defamiliarizing strategy because in a black and white film, so suddenly this, the appearance of a color, forces the viewer to kind of detach him or herself from that scene on the basis of whatever he or she had used before for relating to it. So suddenly mm -hmm. it kind of creates a shift, you know, it kicks you out and, and forces you back in from a different door. So defamiliarizing is a fabulous uh, kind of a key metaphor. And very often I think, you know, the visual still sticking to, to, to neurology rather than just kind of learning uh, elements of that these days is something that a lot of, of practitioners in various fields, I'm working with a tennis coach who's using a method of defamiliarization that goes through the fact that he doesn't allow his players to explain things by words and his main point is that don't name it. The moment you name it, you use that name as an explanation for what you're doing. I want you to see it without that kind of filter. So it makes them redo and deconstruct actions that they've been doing before without the same framework of explanation they had before. You know, that's another kind of defamiliarizing. So it, I think applied to ethnography, this works brilliantly. And if you apply it to, to a city, that's where I think, you know, the development of contemporary image-making technologies really makes sense. We take this from, from a, I mean, we make a step backwards. Uh, images we take with our mobile phones contain, of course, a visual piece of information. It's a frame containing, you know, something that we can analyze through the tools we have in, in image analysis. You can uh, use semiotics, uh, image composition, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, those images are part of various set of networks. Yeah, these images are shared on Facebook, people tag themselves into, 
we shared them on, on Twitter, hashtagging ourselves. Facebook is like a permanent community tagging itself into a picture. Hashtag is a temporary one, which is dependent on that very topic. So it's already two different types of communities. And this is part and parcel of our understanding of these images. For instance, when we look at them on Facebook, dialogues coming with them, it's a, it's a very interesting terrain we have in front of us, which makes us attentive on one thing, that whatever is contained by the image is not all there is to know about that image. Similarly, even if you don't move into the space of Facebook or Twitter, when you take one of these photographs with, a, with, with your iPhone, you visualize it in relation to a timeline set by your uh, image viewer. Yeah? So you have like blocks, moments yeah, of your life. So you, 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 it's not one photograph. It's a syntagmatic relation between photographs. Uh, Photographs and video clips merge, they are in the same space. Once upon a time we had the safety on our window. Film is one thing, photography is another. Is it so today? Now they come together in a funny way. Thirdly, we can look at them through maps. They all contain GPS information. So suddenly one photo, if we ask our interlocutors to walk the city, you know, uh, taking pictures, the pictures they bring back to us are not just detached visual moments, but a part of a quite interesting scenario uh, containing geopositional information, relational information, um, that is part and parcel of what we can interview them about. I don't think we should treat that information as valid per se. It's not just raw data. But, you know, we can incorporate it in our practice, go back to our interlocutors and interview them on the basis of that. Now, this can be pushed even further, because if we use GPS, GPS tracking devices, or regular GPS trackers, or the ones we can you know, upload into a mobile phone, we can actually combine images and the way people move in the city and interview them on the basis of that. Uh, the work we've done in Lisbon on that has shown some fabulous... Uh, I had a master's thesis by, by one of my students called Patricia Freire, who actually put people in action, yeah? put, giving them walks to do, interviewing them after the walks with the help of a tourist map, then interviewing them again on the basis of GPS map, look at the differences, similarities, and very often what you will discover is that the perception of time that we have is much different from what we remember we had. We cannot remember how long we stop in a particular point, and the GPS helps us in that. So suddenly, you know, someone tells you, no, I just rushed by and took a picture there very quickly, and you see that person stopped 30 minutes. Why? And we would never have gotten that piece of information. Huh? We would never have an opportunity unless we had the GPS information, which shows us, okay, this person stayed there for so long. Why on earth? And then you start tracking down memories. You discover, for instance, that our perception of time as we move in, in, in the street, in the public room, is also filtered by our, the emotions that we connect to these places. So people tend to remember us longer the permanence in a place where they have strong memories. Strong memories are kind of a prolongation of our time in a way. So they speak about something as if they were there for half an hour, and then maybe they were there for 20 seconds. Yeah? So the combination of stuff which is there in a frame and whatever is beyond the frame, which is the term that I like using, which is something that you know, image analysis has always taken into contemplation, but generally on a metaphorical level, now it's very concrete, it's very much in our hands, and we can really use it. Yeah? And I think this, this allows, in particular, to bring out, to, 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 to materialize the extraordinary aspects of the mundane, especially walking in the city. So it's a fabulous defamiliarizing strategy, because 
we think we know what we do when we walk from home to our office because we do it every day. But every day maybe we do something different, but we're not aware. So these technologies somehow just function as a little reminder of the exceptionality of those moments, and I think we can convert them into useful tools for research. Thanks, that's great. Uh, maybe we can talk about the challenges now. Um, what, what kind of um, challenges do you see when using visual material uh, as ethnographic methods? Or we were thinking of maybe ethnical aspects that um, one may face when conducting field work in the city or in public spaces. You know when. When is it a private situation? When is it a public situation? And, and how, do you, uh, how do you deal with these kind of situations? Well, yeah, that's, that's always a tricky question. I think we are never prepared enough to tackle it. Um, generically, if we look at kind of visual methodologies pre this incorporation, this beyond the frame, you know, I think we were kind of solid knowing that or thinking that we knew that, okay, informed consent, saying that we apply, you know, into other kinds of situations, of course, is the core. Uh, but then the problem is that in an image, you know, you can have informed consent of the person in front of you, but there's other people in the background, how do you deal with it? Now, of course, the laws would have it phrased in a very simple way, you know, laws say very clearly, like when you work with documentary films, uh, okay, if you don't identify people, if people are a crowd, you don't have to ask them for permission, you know, if you identify them, you have to ask them for permission, but ethics is a different thing. Now, because maybe that person there is not allowed to be there at that moment, so what if this is being shown? Maybe legally I'm protected, but I'm still ruining that person's life by showing him or her in that context and so on and so forth. So ethics is still uh, quite tricky. I, I think, you know, we, we should always take a step backwards and try to understand why we are taking images or making images even better the moment we are doing it. What I'm thinking is the fact that one thing is that we are collecting data, data to be actually used by us for understanding a particular phenomenon. No one is going to see it. Yeah, It's actually me seeing it. Or perhaps it's going to circulate in a, in a research environment, an enclosed research environment. But this is a case-by-case -case situation. So what if that research environment is also made up by bureaucrats and we're touching upon a delicate problem? So we, I don't think there is a generic rule but we have to you know, look at it from case to case. But surely what it becomes tricky if, is if we are sharing that kind of material. So if we are filming in a way which is a hybrid between filming material which is for our research but maybe flirting with the idea of doing a film, then we need to be very clear with that because the moment we are bringing it out there in, into the public, that leads to a different set of problems. So what I think is always that a, a, a visual anthropologist or a visual ethnographer should always be extremely slow. You know, it's like the, the, the slow research idea, the slow food <laughs> kind of vision applied to anthropology, you know, slow ethnography. Give it time, understand an environment very clearly before you start messing it up. Mm. You know? So be part of it. Share from the moment the fact. So it, it's not being part of it with an idea of actually allowing someone to believe that you will not be filming them. No, make it very clear, I will be filming you. But I start by just making you accustomed to my presence and I start to understand, you know, was this sociologist Adamant who said like, it's not about capturing a moment, but it's about entering the rhythm of the subjects that we are filming. It's a beautiful way of thinking of it. So it's like 
entering a rhythm, you know, and understanding how things move about, understanding the ethical implications of it. Only then starting to test the camera and always sharing the result of the camera work with the interlocutors, which to me is another fundamental thing, which has two aspects. One is ethical, and it's kind of protecting the people in the sense that they can identify, oh, no, 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 that thing you cannot use of me. But this is also something that leads us to understand better what we're doing. People may feel misrepresented and we may wonder why. And that may open up a whole space regarding aesthetics. A certain kind of portraits are considered to be, we may not see it from our culture point of view, but someone else's you know, point of view may actually say that this is not a decent position. This is not a decent portrait and so on and so forth. So they always, I mean, this bouncing back, this sharing of the material always constitutes an opportunity to get more information. I'm thinking more about these public spaces because for me I'm about to do field work in, partly in metro stations and this is a public space in many ways but I would not feel at this point completely confident about filming or taking photos but then I realized that this, these uh, places are constantly filmed. The surveillance cameras are very present and we are captured in every corner sort of. But this is there's no author or there's no per person behind that photography. So photographing, so it's different than anthropological or ethnographic work. And I'm that sparked my my thoughts on if how you perhaps would describe the limit of when an image or a visual material is not anthropological or of ethnographic interest. Mm. Well, I think the metro example is, is like a, a good point. And I think that we are, I mean, ethical principles, uh, social scientists, we are, we are not never in, really in tune with technological advancements. Because at the same, you know, as much as we, we have like laws, for instance, regarding CCTVs, if I put the CCTV outside the door of my flat, there's a law saying that it must, you know, be directed towards my flat so that people walk up the stairs they will not be seen by the camera yes only people approach my door so there are very clear laws now in Belgium insurance companies actually sponsor uh, the purchase and use of dashboard cameras so a camera which films you as you're driving and films whatever you have in front uh, possibly in your back also that is like every time you put your 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 car on it starts filming so if there is a dispute or something, they have evidence for it. So you get a discount, you know, because you're protecting the company from yourself. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So if I was like smoking and holding a uh, mobile phone against my ear and, and scratching my ear with the other hand and there's an accident, of course, you know, the blame will be falling on me. Yeah? So this is what they protect people against. Now, there is no law regarding that. So what's the difference between a, a, an open CCTV or something like that, a movable CCTV? Or the fact that we take pictures at each other all the time. Mm -hmm. Is that, isn't that a kind of an internal monitoring also? No, when we take pictures, we put them on Facebook. You know, there's this ongoing kind of monitoring that happens. So I think we're simply not even close to that point, you know, where we are kind of considering the implications of, of those things. So when we do research in those environments, I don't think we know exactly how to deal with them. You see, when I was teaching in London, I used to do this exercise. It was a drill. I would send people out to St. Pancras Station which is, you know, where the Eurostar comes. It's a high-security mm. station. Totally mad idea of me to do so, but I would send my students out and tell them, okay, to create a visual essay, 
portraying their understanding of the, the, the social life of the station by portraying people. So they were not allowed to photograph or film the station. I was doing it with photography only, mm -hmm. but only to photograph subjects, human beings. So really like closing up, no zooming allowed. So they have to really engage with people. And this was fabulous. In some cases the police would come yeah, and tell them you're not allowed to, which was a fabulous entry into, into visual culture because you understand how, you know, you know, a police represents, you know, someone's right to take pictures. Mm. I, well, the only thing I disagree in, in the way you phrase the question is the fact that they don't belong to, no, there is someone taking those pictures also. It's government, it's a market, I mean, there's a monitoring which is happening very clearly. But I'm not allowed to counter monitor. So one of my students did something brilliant. He started just photographing CCTVs all over where, wherever he could find it. So he was dialoguing with them. Mm. So I've seen fabulous work happening, people photographing their feet. So like kind of dialoguing, you know, with the, with the visual culture of that place. Mm. Uh, by, you know, of course, what I was expecting them to do is like a station is made up of fast movement, you know, so basically they photograph people that are blurred, you know, so that's how you could kind of convey your understanding. But there's much more. There's all these twisted boundaries. So I think, you know, that what I would do is simply that you start doing it and you find the implications bit by bit as you are engaging with people. But another assumption that I have is also, I think, you know, a lot of the people that we meet in, you know, wired, industrialized parts of the world is that no one does really bother about being photographed. I mean, we're kind of used of, to be photographed, isn't it? We know that there's a CCTV filming us in a, in a subway station. We know there's people taking portraits. So I don't think, you know, they react. Then the question is ethics, but that's a different thing, no? Yeah, and I'm thinking um, because yeah, as I already talked about in, during the workshop, um, me as an <laughs> average user of a camera, how, yeah, what would you recommend to students of how to become more engaged in the visual? Um, you, you mentioned some schemes in, in, during the workshop. Mm, oh yeah. Some, some, you know, some practical, maybe I'm looking for some practical advice of how to um, be more close to visual materials yeah. in, in relation to my research. But you see, one thing that we didn't have the time to discuss was image composition. So there's always an idea of how you can bring in good material. Mm -hmm. But another thing which is more fundamental for me is like to move away from the correct use to, to like um, the sincere use. I mean, I, I just like thinking it in terms of sincerity. So I don't think there's anything better, you know, than you putting that tool at disposal mm -hmm. of, of the group of people you're conducting research with and seeing what can we do with it. You know, how can it be, you know, reflecting your lives, you know, how, what can we do together? Because as long as it becomes just a prolongation of yourself and it's like a tool of control, then we fall back into older metaphors, you know, then the camera becomes a, a screen, we protect ourselves, we shield ourselves from, from reality through the camera, you know, through the view mirror and, and everything, you know, through the viewfinder. Uh, but, you know, if we put it there in the middle, look at that, digital cameras have detached our eye from the camera or the LCD screen. That's already a step, you know, we're three. It's my eyes, the eyes of the camera and, and the eyes of the, the people in front of us. So if we make that into a triangle proper and we put this camera at the center, you know, and generates that kind of a dialogue, then I think that you are already into some kind of track. This is really my, my take is always this one, to kind of move away from this idea of shooting capturing, of documenting, you know, let, let's, let's play, let's play with the camera, let's choreograph a dance between people with 
the camera being one of the actants, like Latour would say, and, and, and find together a way to generate the form, because that's where we end up then, you know, that the, the content becomes a form that makes, you know, intelligible the, the lifestyle, the, the values of the people we're trying to portray. So I would tackle it from that end, yeah. I know we are running out of time. Yeah. I wonder if I can add one last sure. question. Because you talk about the frame of the, the image, for example, and what, what we can find beyond it and, and things like that. And I'm pretty straight out. What kind of um, similarities do you see between framing a photo and framing or conceptualizing a field, field work? Hmm. Oh, that's a thick question. Good one. Um, framing a photo, framing... Oh, this would require time. You see, there's a friend of mine who's a fantastic anthropologist in Australia called Melinda Hinkson, who stopped doing film, he said, because what scares me is all that stuff that I leave behind when I frame something, no, which, I, which I love, is the fact that there's all these other things that you, you know... And I think that process of selection is nicely put. That's what you do also when you look at the field. But... You see, there's two things happening. I mean, well, if I have, I'm just playing eh, with my thoughts here. So you see, one, one mistake that, that a lot of filmmakers do, mistake, but something that looks ugly if you have to make a film, is that when a subject moves, you have a camera moving after the subject. No? It's much more interesting to place a camera there and allow subjects to move in and out of the image. So if you have to film, okay, go back to one example of on tennis. You know, on tennis, whenever I try filming feet of players, you cannot film feet by moving around, you know, because you're never going to get them in the image. So what you do is like you, you find a square meter that you put in good lighting and in good sharpness. You focus on that. Then the player will come there. Yeah. So similarly, you know, is how much in a field when you do field work, you force your ideas into mm. this thing by moving around and trying to fit them in. Because if you look around with the camera to, to, to find things, yeah, it's like similarly metaphorically in fieldwork, you're trying to squeeze them in into your ideas. Or why observing and seeing that, okay, it happens there. So I, I put my focus over there. You know, I try to look at what happens. Because at the end of the day, fieldwork is what is, is what feeds the ideas to you. I mean, what we write about, I'm totally convinced about, and that's the beauty of ethnography and anthropology, is the fact that, you know, the concepts come to us. We're not putting the concepts over there. That's what we're supposed to do, not, not imprinting our concepts on top of the people, the environment we're studying, but the other way. It's the, the environment that feeds us the ideas. Mm -hmm. so similarly, that's the kind of discovery that you do with the camera. No? You understand where things are happening and you let the camera be in that space and then see what happens in front of it and you tackle it from there. So I think there is you know, a kind of a politics of framing which are quite, quite similar in a way. But to give a better answer, I should like kind of <laughs> but I liked it. There was something in that, that framing thing that I think works, yeah. But there's a politics behind it. But I think the trick is always of not actually imposing our form, for instance, when we film. I may, you know, have an idea that this film I want to do it in observational, but maybe that field is not designed for being filmed in observational style. Maybe it's really kind of more reflexive. And I need to adapt my form to the field. And that's what field work is also I do all the time, to adapt the concepts to actually what we're studying. So in that way they mirror each other. Yeah. But then there's a process of exclusion which is really similar to both. Look forward for the next seminar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, you so much for coming. Useful.
You've been listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We wish to thank Professor Paolo Favero for joining us in this episode. If you'd like to find out more about what he is currently working on, visit the show notes for this episode at collant.org. And if you haven't already, you can also find links to subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you're already a subscriber, please take a minute to rate and review us. It's incredibly helpful to getting the word out about our podcast when you do. And as always, if you'd like to be the first person to know about new podcast episodes and all the other great content that gets put out on Colant.org, then follow us on Twitter, where we are at Colant, and like Cultural Anthropology on Facebook. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time for another exciting look into the world of anthropology.